The market doesn't joke around, so why would you? Get serious. Choose Tasty Trade. Tasty Trade gives you the tools you need to make smarter moves. Dig into data with advanced charting, track profit accurately with order chain trackers, see risk clearly with curve analysis, and trade with low-capped commissions, stocks, options, futures, and more. All on one platform. No wonder serious traders choose Tasty Trade. Join the club, genius. Tasty Trading is a registered broker-dealer and member of FINRA and SIPC. I'm Brian Sullivan, and you're listening to CNBC's Worldwide Exchange. Our show airs live weekdays at 5 a.m. Eastern. Listen in. It is 5 a.m. at CNBC Global Headquarters. Here are your top five and five. Investors bracing for a busy week. Earnings season, it kicks into second gear. Tesla, IBM, Netflix, and many more, all of them on deck. Crude continues its climb higher as options traders they pile into even more bullish bets some even calling for two hundred dollars a barrel over in europe and bitcoin's boom showing no signs of slowing down as wall street prepares to welcome its first crypto futures etf and then looking at china third quarter growth missing the mark energy shortages supply bottlenecks and beijing's multi-sector crackdown all of them being blamed and can Apple get investors excited about hardware outside of its iPhone lineup? We're going to find out at 1 p.m. Eastern time today. It is Monday, October 18th, 2021. You're watching Worldwide Exchange right here on CNBC. And good morning. I am Frank Collin in for Brian Sullivan. We're going to kick off your Monday morning with U.S. stock futures. Well, they're slipping this morning. Let's take a look. All three of the major indices down fractionally right now. We're seeing at this point the Dow looks like it could open up as many as about 100 points lower. Now, this all comes after the major averages. They ended last week really on a high note, with the Dow posting its best week since June with a 1.6% gain and the S&P seeing its best week since July. Looking outside of stocks, oil, a lot of headlines about oil, continues to trade at its highest level in just about seven years after gaining 3% last week. Right now, we're looking at Brent up almost a percent, WTI up over a percent this morning. And then we have to look at the digital economy. Bitcoin continues to make waves, trading at its highest level since April, breaking through that $60,000 mark this morning. We're looking at it right now at 61,600, almost 61,700, up almost 2%. We're going to have much more on crypto throughout the morning right here on Worldwide Exchange. And now we're going to turn our attention to the global economy, looking all around the world, mostly red arrows over in Asia overnight, as China's economy grew less than expected in the third quarter. And Europe, just getting its trading day started. Let's get over to Juliana Tattlebaum in our London newsroom with much more on the early action. Good morning, Juliana. Frank, good morning. Well, just as you said, U.S. futures are slipping this morning. European stocks are also retreating after last week's strong run. The main benchmark stock 600 last week gained about 2.65 percent, its second positive week in the row. But this morning, we are seeing uh, European stocks start, start out on the back foot. And that China data out overnight, no doubt driving sentiment here. From a sector perspective, this is what the split looks like this morning. We've got the majority of sectors trading lower, uh, the only ones in positive territory 
territory at the moment. Utilities, basic resources and banks. On the downside, household goods is the key underperformer this morning, down 1.3 percent. And within that basket, we are seeing a particularly hard sell-off in luxury stocks. So let me give you a look at how the key luxury names are trading this morning. Red across the board, as you can see, 2 to 3 percent worth of losses for these names. And that coming on the back of this uh, data out of China overnight, confirming that the Chinese economy is losing momentum and the Chinese consumer hugely important to the luxury sector. Frank, back over to you. Juliana, we appreciate it as always. Now let's get some of this morning's top corporate stories. Bertha Coombs is here with much more on that. Bertha, good morning to you. Hey, good Monday morning to you, Frank. The price of Bitcoin is riding high as Wall Street braces for its first SEC-approved Bitcoin tracking ETF. In an amended regulatory filing late Friday, ProShare says it expects its new Bitcoin strategy ETF to list today with trading to start later this week. The updated filing from ProShares also likely indicates that the SEC is unlikely to block the listing despite no official word from the regulator. Meantime, Goldman Sachs says it has won Beijing's approval to take a 100% ownership of its joint venture in China. The move allows the investment bank to tap into growing demand among the country's wealthy for even more financial products and investment guidance. The wholly owned unit also allows Goldman to open what its executives are calling a, quote, new chapter and pave the way for the bank to double its workforce in China. And the Alaska Department of Revenue, a department which manages some $10 billion of U.S. traded assets, has unloaded on meme stocks. In a regulatory filing, the state's fund says it sold nearly 29,000 of its GameStop shares in the third quarter while buying massive stakes in Moderna, Palantir, and analog devices. Shares of GameStop were down about 18% in Q3 of this year, but they're still up nearly 900% since January. That's been quite a ride on that one, Frank. Yeah, very interesting that the uh, state of Alaska making such a strong investment on meme stocks to begin with and now unloading them. Very interesting stuff up there. All right, Bertha Coombs, we appreciate the very latest. All right, turning our attention back to the broader market, stocks have to kick off the week in the red after some big gains on Friday. The big theme on deck, earnings from the likes of Netflix, IBM, CSX, Tesla, Whirlpool, Southwest, and many more. Johnson Johnson up there, too. Joining me now, CIC Wealth Executive Vice President Malcolm Etheridge. Malcolm, good morning. Thank you for being here. Morning, Frank. Thanks for having me again. Well, we're kicking off this Monday morning. The futures are in the red across the board fractionally, but still in the red. Now, you say since the pandemic started pretty much, the Dow, the S&P and the Nasdaq, they seem to be tied together, moving in tandem. But more recently, you say that pattern is broken and individual names, individual stocks can uh, move the markets or move an indices So, of course, we're looking ahead to earnings. We saw the big names reporting their earnings today. Is there any one report that can move the market up or move it down? Any one report that can be a major catalyst? Not necessarily. There's a ton of companies that are set to report this week, as you guys just got got through mentioning. I think it's 72 is the exact number. So there's quite a few reports from quite a few companies that uh, will likely actually move us either off of this, uh, you know, red that we're seeing so far this morning or exacerbated. But what we are uh, especially focused on and especially surprised by so far is the strength of the retail sales numbers that we've seen, right? We've seen the uh, spending data out of Visa and MasterCard that suggests that through Q3, 
uh, we actually had pretty strong spending in the consumer discretionary category specifically, which is a big shock to anybody who was paying attention because, you know, we had inflationary concerns. We had all the backups at the ports. We had, you know, all the supply chain issues and peak Delta all happening right at that moment. And you still see people are going out and spending, and especially in the retail category, which was a big surprise. You know, Malcolm, you just said inflationary concerns. I mean, we definitely have inflation. But as you mentioned, it doesn't seem people are that concerned. They're still spending their money out there. Um, you mentioned that Jay Powell's recent statement that inflation may be more than transitory and that it could last into 2022, maybe well into 2022, was concerning investors. But since then, the Nasdaq and the S&P both getting about 2 percent after their worst month since March of 2020. Where are you seeing those inflationary concerns play out when it comes to investors? Well, uh, people may not feel it or may not be reacting the way that, you know, uh, economics tells us that they should. But if I am just looking for, for telltale signs, the fact that the, the Fed actually increased the cost of living adjustment uh, for next year for Social Security benefits to 5.9 per six, 5.9 percent, sorry, for next year, that tells me everything I need to know, right? If we look at the last couple of years, it was 1.6%, I believe, in 2019 and 1.3% uh, for 2020. And so if I look at that, that's that's more than four times that COLA for the, the, the last year, which tells me that if I am a retiree or even a pre-retiree, I should be extremely concerned and careful about how I actually draw down uh, that portfolio uh, going forward, right? If I just think about the simple uh, math on it, the rule of 72, for a couple who's living off of, say, $100,000 in retirement right now, I divide 72 by 5.9%. And that tells me that something like 11, maybe 12, 12, 11, 12 years is what it would take for that $100,000 to only buy me $50,000 worth of goods. Uh, that's not that's not great. That's That should be concerning for anybody who's younger than, say, like 90 years old right now. All right, Malcolm Etheridge, we're going to have to leave it there. Great stuff as always. We appreciate you being here. Thanks for having me. All right, when we come back here on Worldwide Exchange, much more on China's third quarter slowdown and what impact the region's energy crunch is having on our next guest, Bullish Outlook. Plus, how Jack Dorsey is giving Bitcoin a big boost. CNBC's Mackenzie Sigalos is here with her exclusive report. And later, why $100 crew could be in the cards in the next weeks and months ahead. Again, Capital's John Kilduff. He weighs in on this. A very busy hour still ahead when Worldwide Exchange returns. Stay with us. What does it mean to be rich? Is it having more stories to share or time to give? Is it being able to keep your loved ones close or travel somewhere far away? At Edward Jones, we believe the key to being rich is knowing what counts. Your dedicated financial advisor will take a comprehensive approach to your financial strategy to help support what truly matters to you. EdwardJones.com slash findyourrich. Edward Jones, member SIPC. People today can spend half their lives over 50. So it's good to be financially ready for what's important to you as you get older, like a family vacation. Or starting your dream business. Welcome to Connie's Coffee. How may I help you? AARP's trusted financial tools can help you plan for whatever your future holds. That's why the younger you are, the more you need AARP. Start planning today at aarp.org slash money tools. 
All right, welcome back to Worldwide Exchange. China reporting disappointing third quarter GDP growth of 4.9% compared to last year, missing expectations of 5.2%. A number of factors may have led to this quarter's slowdown, including power outages that impacted the supply chain and the ongoing crackdown on sectors like Internet, tech, and education. For much more on this, let's bring in Sarah Lien, Director and Client Portfolio Manager at eSpring Investments. Sarah, thank you for being here. Hi, Frank. Thanks for having me. So, Sarah, I got to ask you, we got to jump right into this. You are still very bullish on China. You believe that uh, uh, China investment should be part of every portfolio. But then you mentioned that the Chinese markets are trading near historical valuation multiples, with China being the worst regional performer year to date. Uh, it's also sometimes hard to know what the Chinese government is going to, let's say, put their attention on. Certain sectors getting a lot of attention. Why are you still so bullish on China? Well, you're right. The China market has had a tough year. It's down about 15 percent this year. It's the worst uh, performer in Asia above all the Asian markets. So it, it's been a, a, a downward trajectory. It's been um, a bit of an uncomfortable ride. We've had an energy crisis. We've had uh, housing market weakness. We've had worries about debt. Uh, you know, you name it. There's been a, there's been a lot of negative sentiment around the market after having a very year, in fact, in 2020, uh, with regards to managing the COVID-19 pandemic. But we actually think long term that a lot of the reforms that are going on um, in the Internet sector in, in terms of improving competition, creating a, a fair playing ground, protecting data privacy, giving consumers more choice. We think all of that, will, those reforms will actually be good for the market long term. So right now we're, we're experiencing a bit of pain as China you know, reforms and restructures. But we actually think that the market will be more resilient in the long term. So with the market down so much this year, we actually think it's it's a really good entry point for investors who, who are interested in being part of, of China's growth trajectory. And so we're looking at areas like healthcare, consumer, internet and technology. Those are the areas where we think there will continue to be strong growth because they are very important to China's agenda in terms of uh, restructuring and, and reforming the economy. Let's touch on uh, Internet and technology just for a minute. Uh, one thing that got a lot of attention here in the U.S. was China's crackdown on video game stocks and online education stocks. Uh, these are two stocks that obviously and generally target a younger demographic that a lot of people saw as a lot of room to grow. With those kind of crackdowns on those kind of stocks, how can investors be confident, if you're saying to continue to be bullish, that these stocks will continue to grow as expected when it just doesn't seem to be clear what the regulatory environment is? Yeah, we do have um, a, a lot of confidence in the Internet sector. We think that there are products and services that consumers in China want and need. And, and you know, China is actually very, very competent. They have a very skilled workforce in terms of developing Internet capabilities and in, in, in developing games. I mean, one fun fact is that a lot of young Chinese, uh, young Chinese adults actually meet their partners online playing games. So there actually is sort of a social benefit to these games, even though the, the, the crackdown and, and sort of the, um, the reforms have been targeted at, at young children playing games. The, the real bulk of the people that are playing games and where the, the revenues are coming from are from, from adults, young adults, in fact. So we do think that there is still space for, for gaming in terms of uh, where we're, we're bullish, we're looking at things like cybersecurity, software as a service, 
uh, internet e-commerce. Those are the areas where we think that there's still a lot, a lot of good growth, and uh, the you know we're still in, in the early days of digitalization, electrification, uh, a lot of right. new technologies, data centers, etc., where. Right. The, the economy will continue to grow. Well, sir, we almost have to wrap up. Uh, one quick thing I want to touch on is the idea of common prosperity and how you see that impacting Chinese stocks. I see Alibaba, for example, down about 21% over the last three months. But you look at the last week, it's actually up. How is common prosperity, if you don't mind, a quick elevator version of it, going to play out for these Chinese stocks, at least in the near term? So the goal of common prosperity, as we understand it at eSpring, is, is to make the playing field more fair, give more opportunity to more people. And so that was in terms of focusing on in, improving the, the social well-being of the community, improving the access to education, improving access to goods and services and affordable housing. So all of that should actually benefit the, the Chinese consumer and the average Chinese person over the long term. So as investors, we want to play into those themes where the government is, is most focused in, in improving the, the long-term growth trajectory. All right, Sarah Leanne, we appreciate it. We're going to all be keeping our eye on those Chinese stocks today for sure. All right, thanks for being here. Still on deck here on Worldwide Exchange, watch out Tesla, another global automaker making a big bet on batteries that are produced right here in the U.S. Plus, it's not just Evergrande. Why another property developer in China is raising red flags for investors. Your big money movers when Worldwide Exchange returns. Stay with us. Today's big number, 16%. That's how much home prices will climb through 2022, according to a forecast by Goldman Sachs. That's on top of the 20% home prices jumped this year. Canva presents unexplained appearances. It was an ordinary workday until... That presentation appeared out of thin air. Also, it's eerily on brand. Wait, did that agenda just write itself? Words appear, making this unexplainable case... Unexplainable? It's Canva's AI tools. I can generate slides and words in seconds. Really? <clears throat> the real mystery is why I'm only learning this now. Canva.com. Designed for work. All right, welcome back to Worldwide Exchange. Time now for your big money movers, three stock stories of the morning. We begin with automaker Stellantis and battery maker LG Energy Solution. They're teaming up. Their joint venture will produce battery cells and modules for the North American market. The new facility expected to begin production by the first quarter of 2024. We see Stellantis shares down just about a half a percent. Well, a new forecast by health data analytics firm Airfinity predicts that Pfizer and Moderna will almost double their vaccine sales next year. The two messenger RNA vaccine makers expect to control three quarters of the non-Chinese COVID vaccine market. Shares are both down this morning. In a late stage trial of Biogen's ALS drug, it failed to reach its main goal. The company says data still showed favorable trends and it will work with regulators on potential paths forward. Shares this morning down a percent. Now let's check on this morning's other headlines outside the world of business. NBC's Philip Mena. He's in New York with the very latest. Happy Monday, Philip. Happy Monday to you, Frank. Good morning. 17 missionaries, including children, were kidnapped in Haiti while leaving an orphanage. The Ohio-based Christian Aid Ministry says the group of 16 U.S. citizens and one Canadian were abducted by gang members. A senior State Department official tells NBC News that the U.S. is engaging with Haitian authorities at the most senior levels. 
A crisis averted in Hollywood. With less than a day to spare, major studios have reached a three-year deal with a union representing its film and television crews, ending the threat of an historic strike that would have shut down production. The agreement includes mandatory break periods and a 54-hour weekend. Meanwhile, it was a wild weekend in sports. The Seahawks and Steelers on Sunday night football. Big Ben put Pittsburgh on the board first with that toss to Najee Harris. Seattle was playing without Russell Wilson, but they responded with two big touchdowns in the third. The teams then traded field goals in the fourth. Seattle forced overtime as time expired. And in overtime, a Seattle fumble would set up that game winner. The Steelers get back to 500 with a 23-20 win over the Seahawks. And in Foxborough, Trevon Diggs tied a league record, picking off the quarterback in his sixth straight game to start the season. It was part of a wild fourth quarter between the Cowboys and Patriots. In overtime, Dak Prescott would find CeeDee Lamb with some room to run. Dallas with the walk-off win over New England, 35-29. to To the WNBA Finals, the Phoenix Mercury needed to turn up the heat to avoid elimination, but the Chicago Sky had other plans. Courtney Vandersloot put that game out of reach. Chicago swept away a fourth-quarter deficit, and the Sky take the game and the series 80-74. In Candace Parker's first year playing in her hometown, she delivers the franchise its first WNBA championship, and Kalia Copper was named the Finals MVP. She averaged nearly 19 points per game in the playoffs. And Frank, Major League Baseball playoffs in full swing as well. The Braves are now just two wins away from the World Series. And the ALCS also continues tonight, Game 3, with the Red Sox and Astros tied at one game apiece. It's October. It's a great time of year for sports. Philip, are, are you an Astros fan? I know you're, you're a Texas guy, and I know you spent yeah. some time in Houston. I am an Astros fan, so you know. After all of the, I get uh, I get a lot of guff for yes, uh, what happened was, in 2017. You know, what I, could I do? What could I say? You I was know? about to say it's hard not to see the Astros as the villains now, but uh, you know, still some great baseball playoffs. A lot of people enjoying it. Good to see good games, but never rooting for the Astros. No, no offense. But after all that happened, hard to root for them. Hey, well, the coach of the Red Sox was part of that team too, and now they're all spread across the league. So you know, the stinks on everyone. Yeah, but I'm also not say. a Cowboys fan. We're going to talk about that later, Philip. We got it. All right, right. straight ahead here on Worldwide Exchange. More trouble for Instagram and yet another trove of internal documents. Reveal the social network's number one fear. And if you haven't already, follow our podcast. And if you miss Worldwide Exchange, a big pop for Brian Sullivan. Check us out on Apple, Spotify, or other podcast apps. Plus, a big programming note today, Big Papa, Brian Sullivan is going to be at the Milken Global Conference in L.A. and at noon Eastern, a special one-hour CNBC Pro live stream with four big, huge guests, including Guggenheim's Scott Minard, Bridgewater's Rebecca Patterson, Shri Kumar, and Teacher Retirement Systems of Texas CIO Jace Audie get their global macro views on all parts of the market and economy, longer-form interviews, all live and off the cuff, Check it out today and sign up today at noon Eastern. Sign up at CNBC.com Pro, and we'll be right back. Stay with us. To 60,000 and beyond, Bitcoin surging to its highest level in months as Wall Street braces for its first crypto tracking ETF, barring a last-minute halt from the SEC. Bullish bets hitting oil as crude rockets to its highest level in seven years while the recent spike may just be the start of things to come. And hurdles ahead for stocks, Jenny Harrington lays out her biggest fears for equities and the names she likes heading into earnings season. It is Monday, October 18th, 2021, and you are watching Worldwide Exchange right here on CNBC.
And welcome back to Worldwide Exchange. I am Frank Collin in for Big Papa, Brian Sullivan. Here's how stock futures are looking halfway through the 5 a.m. hour here on the East Coast. Take a look. All three indices in the red, down fractionally right now. At this point, the Dow looks like it could open up as much as just about 100 points lower. This comes after the Dow saw its best week since June, and the S&P saw its best week since July. This week, though, it's all about earnings, as we get set to hear from the likes of Netflix, IBM, United, Southwest, Whirlpool, Verizon, Tesla, and many more in all 72 S&P 500 companies and eight Dow components. They're on deck to report their earnings this week. Now let's get to some of this morning's top corporate stories. Our Bertha Coombs is back with much more. Good morning again, Bertha. Good morning, Frank. Apple set to lift the curtain on its latest hardware lineup at an unveil event at 1 p.m. Eastern today. Early reports suggest the company will introduce new high-end MacBook Pro laptops equipped with Apple design chips instead of Intel chips. The company also likely to provide a release date for Mac OS Monterey, the latest version of the Mac operating system, which was announced in June but has not yet been officially released. Apple shares this year have been kind of mixed right now, uh, up about 9% year-to-date, flat ahead of the open here. Meantime, Major League Baseball is in talks for a nationwide streaming service that would let fans watch their team's home games without needing a cable TV subscription. The New York Post reports the service could launch as soon as the 2023 season. The NBA and and NHL are also reportedly teaming up with baseball on that service. Sources say subscription rates would vary by market, but could be between $10 and $20 a month. And Instagram reportedly wrestling to retain and engage with its core user group, teenagers, according to internal documents seen by The New York Times. Facebook calling the loss of teens to other social networks an existential threat, adding, quote, if we lose a teen foothold in the U.S., we lose the pipeline. And in response to that threat, the documents say Facebook spent its entire global market budget slated at $390 million this year to target teens. Wow. That's a, that's, you gotta keep that pipeline. Given that the kids have really gone over to TikTok, it's, uh, I can see how it's a threat for them. Have they just gone over to TikTok, though? I see a lot of people doing those Instagram stories. I feel like Instagram is just as popular. I don't have the data on this one, but I, I know a lot of teens. I have young you know, cousins, nephews, things like that. They seem to still be into it. I guess. I was going to say, though, we're older, Frank. <laughs> yeah. I mean, we're not the target demo. We're not I'll put it like hip. That. I'll put it to you like that, Bertha. We are not the target exactly. demo. All right, Bertha Coombs is the very latest. We appreciate exactly. it. Turning our attention back to the markets and the ongoing rally in oil prices, crude ticking higher again this morning after gaining more than 3.5% last week for its eighth positive week in a row. WTI now on track for its longest weekly win streaks since an 11-week streak all the way back in 2015, but it may not end here. According to data from QuickStrike, some options traders, they're betting Brent crude, the global benchmark, will hit a record high of $200 a barrel by December 2022. Wagering supply chain disruptions and regional shortages will just continue to push prices higher and higher. Joining me now, CNBC contributor and again capital founder, John Kilduff. John, thanks for being here. Good morning, Frank. How are you? So we're seeing the moves on oil. Um, You say the supply chain concerns, they're even starting to hit the energy market. But with Brent and WTI both closing at their highest level in years, as we're just kind of touching on there, Brent at its highest level since October of 2018. How does that play out when it comes to price action? 
it's a grind higher right now, Frank. I mean, you know, every almost on a daily basis now we're making new highs for this current rally that we're in. Um, there is a, a, a propensity in the marketplace now. The sentiment is um, increasingly off the charts in, in terms of being bullish. Uh, those call options you referenced um, are lottery ticket really type positioning for the $200 Brent call options. Uh, but, you know, you got to be in it to win it. And, hey, you never know. All those sorts of slogans apply here on that. Uh, I will say that there's a lot of action or increasing action in the $100 crude oil, WTI crude oil options. But, you know, they're within, a, you know, striking distance, uh, pardon the pun here, uh, when, when WTI is at 83. So, look, OPEC is struggling like all the rest of the supply chain is to put more oil on the market. And the Saudis in particular uh, are being uh, hesitant to step up their game when they easily could. But other members of OPEC, for whatever reason, just simply aren't able uh, to uh, put more oil on the market. And that's right. what's helping to keep the global market tight. Well, well, John, I don't know if you know this. Uh, one of our other contributors, Lima Croft, she says the Saudi oil minister actually watches this show. So he might be listening to your comments. Right now, you said he's hesitant to increase production beyond the 400,000 barrels per day per month. Um, but in your notes you sent to us, you said he's basically living his best life with these supply chain disruptions and capacity being constrained. How does the so-called fuel switching, how does that impact both Saudi Arabia and just the general oil market? Yeah, I don't think I'll be getting the uh, dinner invitation to the Saudi oil minister's uh, embassy here in New York anytime soon, Frank, but that, that's okay. Um, it affects them in, in that they are, like I said, other members of OPEC, that we're getting the data out, for example, for, for last month now among the OPEC members, and their compliance with their quota scheme uh, is 115% is about the number. So, in other words, they're, they're not producing as much as they even told the market or they want to, as a group, produce. The Saudis themselves have a spare capacity of about 2 million barrels a day. Literally, they could flick the switch, turn a valve, pick your metaphor, and they could put more oil on the market and really help stop this uh, rally in its tracks. But they won't do it. Um, and and uh, what I remind everyone is that we're, we're looking at them now when they won't put more oil on the market, when right before the pandemic hit, they dumped crude oil on the global market uh, to such a degree that that is part of what engendered the negative pricing that we saw uh, in March right. of uh, 2020. 20. So, uh, you know, they're, they're, I consider them to be no friends of ours. And look, they're, they're happy with the oil price here and they'll be happy and they'll be blaming speculators uh, in the marketplace when it goes to 100, uh, if it does, over the course of the winter. We need more oil now and they're not doing it. All right. John Kildar from Again Capital. We appreciate the insight right now. Brent crude up more than a half a percent. We appreciate it. All right. To another major market story, Bitcoin topping $62,000 and once again, edging closer to its all-time high. A lot happening for crypto this week. For one, payments company Square might jump into the Bitcoin mining business. CNBC tech reporter Mackenzie Sagalos joins us now. So, Mackenzie, Dorsey, obviously a big Bitcoin fan, but why the push into mining? And also, good morning. <laughs> good morning, Frank. So Square CEO Jack Dorsey says that right now, mining for Bitcoin is not accessible to everyone, but it should be. In a string of tweets on Friday, Dorsey said that Square is seriously considering building its own Bitcoin mining system based on custom silicone so that generating new Bitcoin is as easy as plugging into a power source. Today, the mining industry is dominated by large-scale players who can afford to buy tens of thousands 
of ASICs, which is a specialty gear used to create new Bitcoin. Dorsey seems to want to make it so that everyone who wants to be a miner can be. Now, if Square does pursue this project, Dorsey says it will be open source, meaning they will build it out in the open in collaboration with the community, which is a typical approach for Square. It's doing the exact same thing with its Bitcoin hardware wallet. Frank? So, Mac, also on deck this week, the first Bitcoin futures ETF is set to make its market debut. Uh, can you tell us more about what we can expect to see in the next few days? And we've been hearing from some other people that the crypto community is not exactly ecstatic about it. Right. So this is a huge moment in the crypto world, Frank. As long as the Securities and Exchange Commission does not object, the first Bitcoin futures ETF, this one from ProShares, is expected to start trading on Tuesday. And SEC Chair Gary Gensler has signaled that the SEC won't be getting in the way of a futures ETF. And that's a key distinction here. The ProShares ETF will track Bitcoin futures, rather than Bitcoin itself, meaning that investors don't have to physically own the token. And this is kind of opening the floodgates. In the next two weeks, the SEC will consider additional proposals by asset managers like Invesco who want to sell Bitcoin ETFs to investors. So, Mac, here's a real big question. What does this all mean and about the price of or for the price of Bitcoin and where it's headed, at least in the near term, in the next few weeks ahead? Well, already in the last few days, Frank, we've seen investor enthusiasm drive up the price of Bitcoin. It's trading near six-month highs as we speak, and some analysts say this is just the beginning. They think the potential for an ETF frenzy could be a game-changer when it comes to wider Bitcoin adoption. It makes the world's most popular cryptocurrency available to most investors with a brokerage account. So we're talking about Bitcoin becoming much more accessible to a broader investing market. And like you said, while it's not quite the pure Bitcoin ETF that many crypto bulls were hoping for, it should still push institutions toward the digital asset market like we've never seen before. Matt, great stuff as always. Bitcoin up about 2% this morning. We appreciate you being here. Coming up here on Worldwide Exchange, running out of steam or here to stay. An exclusive report on the IT spending surge that's coming up next. But first, as we head to break, some of your other top stories this morning. The e-commerce arm of luxury retailer Saks Fifth Avenue is reportedly exploring an initial public offering. This is according to the Wall Street Journal. An IPO could take place in the first half of next year with a valuation of around $6 billion nearly triple what it was pegged at earlier this year. Facebook says it plans to add 10,000 high-skilled jobs in the European Union over the next five years. The hiring drive is part of Facebook's mission to create a digital world it calls the metaverse. Other companies, including Microsoft, Roblox, and Epic, are also investing in their own metaverses. And after buying some 3,800 homes in the second quarter of this year, Zillow says it will stop its property purchases as it works through its backlog. Worldwide Exchange, back right after this. Stay with us. All right, welcome back to Worldwide Exchange. IT spending is expected to top $4 trillion, trillion worldwide this year, even with many companies delaying their full return to office plans. Instead, they're shelling out billions on tech for hybrid and remote work. Spending is forecast to grow next year, but maybe not at the same pace as 2021, according to a new report from Gartner. Let's get more on the firm's outlook for the coming year. Gartner chief forecaster John Lovelock, who joins us now in a first on CNBC interview. John, thanks for being here. 
Thank you for having me. It's a great day. All right. I think IT is at the center of all of our minds right now with work from home, with Zoom, with everything else going on. Obviously, the pandemic has shifted the need or increased the need for IT. Um, you said spending's forecast increase about 5%, 5.5% in 2022 to $4.5 trillion as part of a K-shaped recovery. What industries do you see leading in IT spending? What industries lagging? Well, the laggards are still the ones that are most affected by the public health interventions. When they were locked down, they were closed. So still transportation to a certain extent, travel, tourism, hotels, hospitality. They still need a few years to recover back to their IT spending levels that were not tremendously high to begin with. Those that are leading are the ones that are getting out in front of their clients and taking them into the digital age. So banking, insurance, even hospitals are leading the charge with massive growth in IT spending. All right. That makes sense. Generally, Um, two areas that you say are going to see some of the biggest gains. That's customer relationship management for our viewers. That's a company like Salesforce and then also supply chain management. Uh, Again, for the viewers, a company like Coupa. Uh, You say they're going to see the biggest growth, more than 11 percent. But then at the same time, you say more and more companies are going to build their own tech as opposed to buy. How do these two trends, how do they kind of play out when obviously there's an increased need for supply chain software, especially are companies going to wait and build their own? And why wouldn't they just go out and buy solutions to deal with the current problems? Well, you're, there's two issues playing in here. I mean, the, the big push from 2020 was evolutionary. We jumped much faster forward in IT because of need. We have to get out and meet our clients where they are. We have to change our supply chain in order to do that. And for those systems, we can differentiate against our competition by implementing and using it better. But when we start changing the value proposition of the company, what we offer and how we offer it, for that, we can't buy software. We can't differentiate if you and I use the same software. So we have to start building this functionality, building the new ways of getting in front of our clients, building the new ways of giving our value proposition to them. So it's not just about taking an old mortgage and putting it up on a website. It's about offering loans differently. Very interesting. Very interesting shift there. Um, in general, besides obviously some shifts in our, our work life to remote work and work from home or hybrid, what are the other factors that are really a catalyst for increased IT spending this year? Because I would think that a lot of companies did a lot of spending last year. Why is it still growing? There is a bit of a stabilization happening this year. Remote is probably the great example. In 2020, uh, at the beginning of 2020, we were still on a very slow evolutionary path towards more remote work. In April, a billion employees went home to work in that month. A massive shift and companies had to do it with the technology that they had on hand. For the rest of the year and most of this year, it's been about stabilizing that environment, making it secure, making it report or supported and giving them the tools that they can use to actually be productive rather than just task completing. Well, now that the public health interventions are waning, we're seeing hybrid work come up. And that means a different set of device stacks needed to optimize that experience. It's a new set of security protocols in to make sure that it's secure for them to do so. And a new set of productivity tools coming in to allow them to do their work wherever, whenever they are. All right, John Lovelock from Gardner. We appreciate it. Looking forward to seeing the more details from that report. Thanks for being here. On deck here on Worldwide Exchange, China growth slumping last quarter with a number of factors at play. A live report from Beijing. That's coming up. 
And if you haven't already, follow our podcast. If you miss Worldwide Exchange, check us out on Apple, Spotify, or other podcast apps. Worldwide Exchange, we'll be right back. Stay with us. All right, welcome back to Worldwide Exchange. New data out of China showing the economy there slumped in the third quarter. Our Eunice Yuen joins us live from Beijing with much more on this story. Eunice, good morning. Good morning, Frank. Well, the Statistics Bureau said that the recovery in China is still very uneven and unstable. So Q3 growth came in at its slowest pace in a year. The numbers missed year on year and also quarter on quarter showed that the economy barely grew at near zero. Supply chain woes, power shortages, uh, property problems, as well as the regulatory crackdowns, all contributed to the slowdown. And these were all what uh, ING had described as pain points, which they see continuing into the year 2022. Now, much of the pain was that the factories were felt in September. Uh, The industrial output number came in at 3.1%, which uh, missed expectations missed expectations and also was a lot slower than in August. Uh, that, that meant that the output was the weakest since the start of the pandemic in uh, March of 2020. Uh, there were some bright spots, though. The retail sales numbers held up pretty well and exports stayed strong. So that helped to offset some of the concerns about the property sector. In fact, new construction starts dropped in September for a sixth straight month. This is the longest series of declines since China has seen since 2015. And then, of course, we have all the troubles with property giant Evergrande. That company uh, faces potential default this Saturday. The central bank, though, attempted to uh, try to ease some of the concerns about Evergrande and the real estate market, saying that China can contain Evergrande's risks. Um, also, the PBOC said that China, um, the economy, is still going to con- go grow at about an 8% clip for the year. Frank? ask you, which one's having a bigger impact here? Those energy shortages that you've been reporting on and we've been talking about or regulatory crackdowns from Beijing? It's very difficult to say. All of it is creating a very uncertain environment. Uh, There's uh, some folks that I talked to in the fi- in the factory sector say that they're most concerned about that power rationing because it is, from their perspective, going to continue. But then again, they are also really worried about the supply chain issues. All right, Eunice Yoon from Beijing, we appreciate the very latest. All right, turning our attention now on the heels of that news out of China. We're looking at the futures right now, all of them in the red, down about a third of a percent as we start this early uh, trade right now. And joining me now to tie this all together is Jenny Harrington. She's the CEO of Gilman Hill Asset Management, also a CNBC contributor. Jenny, thanks for being here. Thanks for having me. I'm a little afraid about needing to tie it all together. (laughs) (laughs) I have a lot of faith in you. Uh, We're going to kick it off with something that you actually already put out there in your quarterly letter. You're telling people to adjust their lens when it comes to returns this year. I'm assuming that means take off the rose-colored glasses because you cite the annualized return for the S&P over the last decade at about 16.5%. And you're saying might not want to expect that in 2021. Explain. Right. And I think one of the things that I'm most worried about isn't as much what we have ahead from an economic perspective as it is investors' behavior. Because as we all know, behavior drives the market. And I think people have become really complacent and kind of like, you know, fat and happy with these really big returns. And yeah, there have been a lot of bumps and weaves over the last decade for sure. 
But ultimately, you've been able to count on really big annualized returns. And I actually couldn't believe how big that number was. Like I could, but then sometimes when you see it actually in writing, it's, it you know slaps you in the face and wakes you up. So 16.5% on an annualized basis over the last 10 years, particularly given what we've endured, is a lot. And then I start to look out going forward and I'm like, you know, we've got some tricky things ahead. We've got $30 trillion of debt to service. We have inflation that may be a little stickier than people expected. We have valuations that are still one standard deviation over their historical averages. We have taxes and regulation that are likely to get worse. Geopolitics aren't great, getting back to your China point, so maybe that's tying it together. (laughs) And the Fed's going to start tightening. So there's all this. I do not, and I want to be really clear, like this is not me saying, hey guys, I think the market's going to crack and crumble. I don't think it is. I just think that these hurdles out there are going to make returns harder to get in the future than they were in the past. And I think people are going to need to start to work. And that's hard. Like it takes a lot of brain cells to make really good investments. You can't just, I don't think you can anymore just be like, oh, I'm going to buy Fang. You know, oh, that's great. I mean, look at what Fang did this year. There's so much disparity within Fang. You've got Apple and um, what is it? Apple and Amazon up five and nine percent, and you've got Google and Microsoft up thirty-six and sixty-one percent. So there's a lot of disparity. I think there's going to be hard work ahead, and I don't know that people like to do hard work, and that's what worries me the most. Yeah, Jenny, we're looking at Fang right now. All the Fang stocks, with the exception of Alphabet, in the red. And by the way, I think you just officially tied it all together. Um, so you're hitting on some okay, of the, the potential headwinds. <laughs> Glad I didn't disappoint. <laughs> you're hitting on some of the potential headwinds that are out there. One of them that you mentioned is tightening. How is tightening going to impact the markets? Mm-hmm. How is tightening going to impact the returns that we can or cannot expect? Yeah. So I think, to me, the beauty of Jay Powell is how unbelievably well he's telegraphed everything. And, and part of what I'm trying to do here is telegraph also and say, hey, you know what? Let's not cry. Let's not be too upset if we get 5% next year, 8% next year. That's just fine. What Jay Powell's done for us is to say, get ready, get ready, get ready. It's out there. We're going to tighten in 23. Sorry, we're going to lower rates. We're going to raise rates in 23. It's too early. We're going to start to tighten. We're going to start to take that $120 billion a month out. So it's all about the response, right? And I think because he has been so amazingly clear in that messaging, I don't think that there's going to be a huge negative emotional response to to the tightening that's coming. But what it means is that there are going to be less dollars sloshing about. And when there's less dollars sloshing about, people are going to be less excited about taking risk, right? Because those dollars become more precious. So I actually think the risk return equation starts to adjust. And I don't think that there's going to be the cavalier level of risk-taking that we've seen over the past really five years. And I think that will impact the market by dampening future returns. Again, still positive, just not what we saw. You know, Jenny, stay right there for a second. We want to touch on a couple of upgrades and downgrades that crossed the tape just a moment ago. We're going to start with actually one of your picks for stocks. Barclays downgrading Disney to equal weight, saying long-term streaming guidance could really be at risk with Disney Plus subscriber growth slowing significantly despite a launch of new titles and movie releases. UBS downgrading Virgin Galactic to sell with a price target of $15 based on a lower pace of flight operations for longer, as well as a weaker balance sheet position given higher cash burn before positive flow into 2026. And Morgan Stanley adding McDonald's to his fresh money buy list. Morgan Stanley says Mickey D's top line has performed well in the U.S. during the COVID-impacted period. Key international markets that were heavily impacted in 2020 now in recovery mode, according to the bank. Jenny, any of these names stand out to you? 
Well, Disney I used as my final trade on Friday on halftime. So that was kind of disappointing to see it turned around and downgraded. But they're talking about streaming. And and the reason I used it as my final trade was because we saw that travel restriction for international travel in the U.S. get lifted on Friday. And, And I think that as normal travel and tourism returns, that the parks are actually a really significant part for Disney. When we bought it last summer, our thesis was that they would eventually get to $10 of earnings. That got kicked down the road a little bit longer than we thought, but I think that's still on track. So I'm not, you know, I'll need to read the whole Barclays downgrade, but I don't think it was too severe. I don't think it derails our buy on it or our hold on it by any measure. Yeah, I understand. Yeah, they too, I don't have a big opinion on. All right, fair enough. Uh, Shares of Disney down a percent and a half, but uh, interesting you're still sticking with that pick. I respect that. Jenny Gilman, uh, Jenny Harrington <laughs> from Gilman Hill. We appreciate it. Thanks for being here. <laughs> that does it for us, us here on Thanks, Worldwide Frank. Exchange. Getting a little bit tongue-tied at the end. Squawk Box is coming up next. <laughs> You've been listening to CNBC's Worldwide Exchange. You can always catch us live weekdays at 5 a.m. Eastern only on CNBC. People today can spend half their lives over 50. So it's good to be financially ready for what's important to you as you get older, like a family vacation. Or starting your dream business. Welcome to Connie's Coffee. How may I help you? AARP's trusted financial tools can help you plan for whatever your future holds. That's why the younger you are, the more you need AARP. Start planning today at aarp.org slash money tools.